<laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, I did. did you sneeze I, once it started recording? I don't know if you'll catch. Yeah, you'll probably catch the end of that. But right as I started the countdown to hit record, I immediately felt a sneeze coming, and I was hoping I could get it in before it actually started recording. But I don't think I did. I like the idea of you always doing countdowns to sneezes. That's uh, <laughs> that's pretty great. That would be awesome. That would be great. But um, hello, everybody, and welcome to Everything is Okay podcast. We are from the great town of Claremore, Oklahoma, where we all grew up in some form of conservative Christianity. Over the course of time, some people have deconstructed, some people have readjusted their faith, but all of us are trying to go through life while having faith and asking questions. So, James, how have you been, sir? I haven't seen you in a little bit. Been doing all right. Um, we've been super busy. Um, David and I started the mobile laser tag business. We did um, Zombieberg through October, and now it's been you know figuring out what all it looks like to set up events and parties and all that kind of stuff with that, and you know making cotton candy and you know all the nice. typical weird stuff we end up doing. Um, so been doing a lot of that stuff. We, uh, we were just up in, um, Colorado to see family and, uh, there's this cold front that's about to come in a little later this week. And, uh, I was really glad that we got out of California or California out of Colorado before it came through because it got into like the teens and single digits and whatever. And that's, you know, that's pretty cold, but the, forecast for thursday wednesday or thursday it might be tonight um they said that the temperatures were going to be somewhere from negative five to negative 25 with wind chills of negative 25 to negative 50 degrees Mm -hmm. like oh well i'm good not being in negative 50 temperatures because that's that's not like a habitable temperature um so there's a story that I saw the other day. Somebody showed it to me and it made me just so happy about dogs. Um, my wife, we have um, three cats in our house. One is my father-in-law's cat and we have two. And then I have a dog and she loves cats. And I don't know why they are the most useless things. And so anytime <laughs> there's stories on like... um you know, dog saves somebody for whatever. I always make sure to let her know if that person owned a cat, they would be dead. Um, cause cats don't care. So there's a story out of Georgia where there was a dog. He was a, he's a, um, great Pyrenees and it was outside of Decatur, Georgia. And he's a 20 month year old dog. And, um, his owner has sheep and, they started hearing some noises and 11 coyotes came out and were starting to try to attack these sheep and his dog took off out there and uh, you know, there's lots of noise, whatever. And as he went out to see what had happened, he found eight dead coyotes, Mm. eight. That's insane. There were 11 coyotes out there. Three of them ran off after this dog killed eight coyotes. Dang. And they found some of the dog's fur and part of his tail. 
and he was just gone. And then two days later, he came walking out of the woods. One of his <laughs> eyes was like slightly popped out. And the owner said it looked like one of the coyotes had grabbed part of his skin and just peeled it all off. And part of his tail was gone, but just walked back and just laid down at his owner's feet. And Jeez. it's now okay. Like has been treated by the vets and stuff. And, but fought 11 coyotes and killed eight of them. That's nice. so insane to me because as we were talking about earlier, coyotes are pretty scary and they kill dogs all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even they on like, like one-on-one they fight. Them. Yeah. They'll lure them in and then they'll, they'll literally f- out. They'll flank them. Yeah. Like they'll come in from the side. It's crazy. Some of the stories you hear. They're the raptors of dogs. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. Um, And there's not, there's not a good transition into this, but James, I got to tell you, like I get pretty heavily affected by quite a few things, you know, in Mm -hmm. the news, like school shootings are awful. Any, any kind of like, Natural disaster is just awful. Um, celebrity deaths, you know, there's been a few this year that um, have affected me pretty good, you know, because mm-hmm. I was a fan of theirs. Um, you know, Taylor Hawkins being one with Foo Fighters. I really, I'd seen Foo Fighters recently. I really enjoyed their music and, you know, that came out of nowhere. But I got to tell you, this latest death with twitch which if you don't know who twitch is twitch was the dj and guy that kind of danced around on the ellen show uh for the last few years wasn't he also um the so you think he can dance or one of those i think he was one of the judges for a while i think so and actually i had seen him in person i went to a conference a couple years ago and he was like he came as like a special performance piece and like he spoke and gave a motivational talk and then he did some dance stuff and it was really cool. But I got to say like not only hearing of his death because he was so young, he was 40, he was a young dad. He had, I think two kids, but the fact that it was a suicide and it was what seemed like literally out of nowhere and I know when we were talking earlier today, there are some suicides where you'll hear. I remember I was think I was telling you earlier the Anthony Bourdain was one where, on the surface, if you watched his show on CNN, you know he it looked like he had it all made. Like it looked like he had the dream job. He basically traveled the world and ate some really amazing food drank with some good people and just basically hung out. That was his job and then made a show about it. But you would hear that he had, he had a depression that would pop up and people would say that. And I haven't heard that with this one. Yeah. And it really has just, it really has hit me. And, and since I, Looked at that. I've had some videos pop up on like Instagram of people talking about it. And it just, man, it just really, it's just struck me so hard. That's the only way I can say it. It's like, I think about it during the day 
for somebody I've never met, you know? Yeah. And literally 24 hours before this, he posted a video of him dancing with his wife, which he did all the time. And I was telling Megan earlier, he literally would be the person that I don't think I would think to ask, are you okay? If I was his friend. Right. Because everything that you ever saw, he was just so positive and happy and like giving to people and all of these things. So. Yeah. Um, it, it, it doesn't make it easier when you hear it coming or like have reason to expect that it's a possibility, but maybe it does. Cause I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's one of those suicide is just such a messed up thing in general. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, especially, um, growing up. I mean, we talked about this earlier that I didn't really know people that had committed suicide. Like it wasn't a thing that I knew people who were going through those things who had actually talked about it. I mean, I'm sure we knew people who were going through some of the feelings and all of that. I know that there's been some that we've lost from addiction, depression, that sort of stuff in the years since high school, but at least through high school, it just wasn't really a thing on my radar. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, or at least not thoroughly enough. So I remember even having conversations where it was essentially like, well, screw them. Like how selfish can you be? Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff. Like it was, it was that it was, this person wasn't thinking about other people. They, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, it was antagonistic towards other people almost in the way I viewed it. Um, and it's heartbreaking to me to think that in any of those conversations I may have been a part of in those years, if there was somebody around who was going through any of that, I, I can't imagine the influence of things that I thought and may have said could have had on people. Um, because mm-hmm. now I've known enough people who have either attempted or successfully committed suicide um, and know enough people's stories that it's that's not at all what's happening, at least most of the time. And I mean, I'm sure there's some instances people could point towards, but the vast majority, I I... I prefer now the way that I've heard I've heard it said of instead of just saying the cause of death was suicide, but the cause of death was mental health, I think is such a more accurate way to say it because that's absolutely what's doing it most of the time. And hearing um, there's several um, podcasts that I've listened to um, from like a lot of like the storytelling podcasts that give people a chance to um, like kind of talk through what they were thinking and for so many people, it's absolutely the opposite 
of being selfish. Because there's one person's story that I remember so well in him talking about how he had a new baby and they were pretty young and he basically felt like he was so bad and worthless that um, he was doing his wife a disservice by being her husband, basically. Mm. And if he went ahead and died, his child wouldn't have to grow up remembering him, but could move on and just remember a new person. And his wife was young enough. He thought she can find love again, get remarried. Like the best thing I can do for them is die. Mm. And that's, that's heartbreaking that somebody would feel that way. And especially just how alone people feel in those times. And, um, you know, anybody who may listen, who has any of those feelings, um, I hope you can talk to somebody about it. Um, and just know that no matter what, like you do have value and it is better if you are still around. And, you know, when, uh, when you have random people, especially people that you might not have talked to in a long time who pop in your head and just makes you think about how much you enjoy them, how, how much they have put into your life. Um, just send in a text sometimes when people pop in your head, you know, it doesn't have to be a conversation just like, a. Hey, you know, I'm just thinking about you. Like, these are things of value that you've added to my life and thank you kind of thing. You know, like, I, I feel like we need to be more able as a society to tell people the worth that they have to us. Mm -hmm. I wish that was a trend that we had in life more. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do, I do wish that that was a trend in more i'll say evangelical circles too mm -hmm. you know because if you think about it the essence of a lot of the message that is delivered in a lot of church services that i grew up in or that we grew up in was how bad you are mm -hmm. how worthless you are without god right and that's their sales pitch yeah Instead of pumping somebody full of worth and saying, maybe, you know, this is how a God would see you, or this is, this is how we believe this is your worth on this earth. You know, you are valuable yeah. type of thing. You hear see, that all the time. And yeah. It's, it's, we, we were terrible at the Imago day, like that we are all image bearers, mm -hmm. you know, like no matter who you are, what you do, the worst person is still an image bearer. Mm -hmm. You know, like God cares about that person. The, oh. whoever you think is like the worst person, you know, bin Laden, when he was killed, God was sad. Mm -hmm. You know, like that, that's a thing I feel like we lose sight of so often. Um, and to your and, point, before I'm sorry to interrupt no, you, but to your point, 
with if you stick with the bin laden thing literally sitting right next to him when he was killed was his two-year-old boy Hmm. his wife was in the room maybe one of his wives i don't know if he had multiple but his wife was there his two-year-old son was there his his two-year-old son i know who we're talking about and i know what he orchestrated i'm not dismissing that but the idea that somehow even that left a hole for a innocent person who has now been in the room of his dad and even though he probably won't ever remember that the trauma of that's there yeah so that's another angle to that as well you know and and it's it's one of those heartbreaking things that like yes people get to a point some people get to a point where no matter what they're going to do terrible things and you have to figure out some way to stop them i don't i don't personally think there's ever a reason to kill somebody like there should be another way but that people can do things so that gets to the point where people think the only thing we can do is kill them that's heartbreaking Mm -hmm. like that's somebody who had that's an image bearer that's at the point where they have had things done to them or made decisions or whatever it is you don't just wake up one day and decide to be you know a mass murderer or whatever Mm -hmm. you know the things that lead up to that that's what i feel like we are supposed to have in compassion and the like in the way we look at people um because i feel like that's a thing that we are supposed to learn when we read the gospels when people were brought before jesus and he was told these are the things they did wrong like he didn't deny that they did those things wrong mm-hmm but when he sees people who've done things wrong, there's compassion because he understands that's not good for them either. You know, like that is a hurting person. So that idea of hurt people, hurt people like Mm -hmm. it's yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop people from hurting people or whatever. We absolutely should, but, but it's also something we can do with compassion instead of just vitriol which I feel like is, you know, the American default, um, sure. figure out who the bad guy is, not just who you should stop, but who is the bad guy. And we like to throw those labels on people. Sure. Well, as we kind of talk about people approaching things with vitriol, approaching people as bad people, things of that nature, I'm really excited to bring the guests that we have today. The moment that I heard about this film, I was very excited that this film was being made. The moment I saw the first trailer, I I thought, oh man, this is going to be a pivotal moment in the Christian church, I believe. This has potential to really, this has potential to make some waves, I'll say. And so I had the amazing opportunity to speak to the director of the 1946 film, which what is 1946? 1946 is a a documentary about a mistranslation in the RSV 
version of the Bible that happened in 1946 that led to the word that was a mis it was a mistranslation of the word homosexual in the Bible. And that led to what we have seen transpire with the Bible with that word. You know, it originally was one verse that got mistranslated. And we get into that a little bit in the interview. It was originally one verse that got now thrown onto six different verses later with a different translation. Politics got involved. Some other things got involved. It's a very, very, very well done film. And we were so fortunate to have the director, Rocky Raggio, join us for this episode. I'm so excited for you to hear it. I can't wait to talk about it on the other side. But here is my interview with the director of 1946, Rocky Raggio. So we are here with Rocky Roggio. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been super excited ever since you uh, agreed to come on here. We actually, I wanted to even make this our final one of the year because I had been anticipating your film for a long time after we, after I learned about it. I was really excited that we got a chance with the film festival to be able to see it and be able to see what came out of it. So thank you for joining us. But um yeah, why don't we start off and tell us a little bit about yourself, how the documentary came about, how you uh, decided to go down this path of making this film. Sure. Uh, well, first, thank you so much for having me, Brad. It's awesome to be on the show. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I just woke up one day and decided to take on the Bible and Christian theology globally, you know, because it's, it's it was just, it sounded easy and it, not very stressful, you know. <laughs> Just kidding. So, uh, you know, within my own story, uh, and as much as the Bible is a wonderful book, it also has been used as a weapon for many different communities. And I am a member of the LGBTQ community. I've had the Bible used against me in a way that is not uh, what I would consider Christ-like. And, uh, you know, so I've struggled with that, with my identity of being an LGBTQ Christian for many years. And trying to reconcile my faith and my sexuality and my relationship with my parents. And uh, after four decades of dealing with that, I wanted to find affirming ground with my non-affirming parents. And the way to have a conversation with them is through scripture. And so I needed to revisit the Bible again. Uh, I needed to, I started going back to church again, uh, which is, uh, we'll see that story in the film and why I actually started going back to church. But that really started to lead me down this path of, uh, asking bigger questions to again find that common ground and find my way back home with my my family and my own belonging uh, and doing it through scripture. So while I was doing that, I stumbled across Kathy Boldock, who is the lead researcher in our film. She has a book called Walking the Bridgeless Canyon, uh, Repairing the Breach Between the LGBTQ Community and the Church. And her work is fascinating where she breaks down how the LGBTQ community has been discriminated over time throughout history 
and in many different forms through uh, the military, politics, um, with society, in medicine, in psychology, all of these different facets, which is just wonderful work. She was the one who discovered that the word homosexual was not in the Bible until 1946. And then she met a young man called Ed, who found that very hard to believe. And so he had to find out for himself. <laughs> and he discovered that the translation committee, the revised standard uh, version, left their translation notes at Yale University. So Kathy and Ed team up. They find letters at Yale University, which now give me, the filmmaker, wanting to find common ground with my parents, a tangible piece of evidence to really engage with this dialogue that I was seeking to do in my own personal life that I feel very strongly between Ed's work and Kathy's work and now my work in the film, we have an opportunity to expand it to other people who I know struggle with this these these things. So through my own exploration, I was able to not only answer the question for myself, uh, but be able to find others who are seeking the same the same kinds of questions, and it's just turned into something bigger than I can ever even imagine. I know it was probably a long explanation of how we got here, but I can't wait for you all to see the film so you can see then what we did with melding this academic kind of exploration with the personal stories of the people who feel compelled to really tell this story, you know? Sure. Yeah. And I have to admit, like a lot of what you speak of, the translations that you you show in the Bible with NIV and New Living Translation and some of the other ones, ESV, all of these translations were translations that we grew up with in, in our church. That was what you got. when I The first Bible I was given was an NIV Bible. I, I'm pretty sure that the majority of what they are probably are that. So it's really compelling to see how when you start walking through how the RSV group admit, and I know we're kind of jumping here, but we'll go back in a second. But when the RSV group like was compelled to say, Hey, you miss, you mistranslated this and they were okay. They were like open to that, but all these other translations jumped on it before they could change it and all of that stuff. And just to know that that is how this came to be, which influenced the way we were taught growing up is so, so interesting. But there was the first part of the film that always grips me because I'm the kind of person who checks the metaphorical like jackpot boxes. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm white. I'm straight. I'm a male. I'm Christian. And, you know, I think there's another one, but I can't think of it. And, you know, so I didn't grow up in a world where I was being told that I was somehow wrong or that I was doing something wrong or, you know, I, I didn't live through that. And, and that was one of the first things that you outline in this film. If you're willing, we tell me what that's, what is that like from, you know, coming from somebody who never experienced that? Sure. Um, so, I mentioned at the beginning of the film that I, I was labeled the troublemaker because I would question. And my parents tell me a story about the deacon of my father's church, pulled my mother aside when I was two and said, you're going to have trouble with this one, you know? Mm. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, I, at a very young age, I didn't really know what this was, my diff being different. 
I just knew that the reality that I was being presented, which is this heteronormative white male hierarchy Christianity didn't make sense to me. And Mm -hmm. because I was different and because I didn't see myself marrying Ryan, who was the only kid who's my age (laughs) in the, you know, at the, at the uh, Sunday school, Sunday mornings with us, you know, like, who am I going to marry? You know, uh, I think those kinds of differences within me afforded me the opportunity to question because I didn't fit into that norm. And then I was able to pick up on the little nuances and the things you would hear, the little whispers about LGBTQ people and gay people. And like Ed says in the movie, you know, they hate God. They are uh, against Christians and they're do all these awful things that we hear LGBTQ people are. And now this movie gives us an opportunity to really understand where that comes from. But for me growing up, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think being different uh, and being brave enough to call out those differences, just my personality, um, is why I'm here today. But not a lot of people are able to to vocalize that or be brave enough to stand up and say, "No, this is who I am." Uh, once you once you realize, you know, it took me a long time to really realize what that was. Um, but looking back in mm-hmm. retrospect, I'm so grateful to be LGBTQ and Christian and being able to grow up in the church and experience being. Uh, ostracized and marginalized because it afforded me an opportunity to really see the world differently to once I got out and I was in Los Angeles and living in other cities and being able to meet other groups of people, people from other nationalities, from other religions, being able to expand my mind and my reality has afforded me, you know, an opportunity to really engage better with people and not just live in this narrow reality that others people, you know? And so I I feel very Mm -hmm. grateful uh, that I went through some awful experiences and hopefully through what I've learned and then the work that I've done through 1946, we can help create some real change so the next generation doesn't have to go through what this generation has had to go through. And now LGBTQ people have been persecuted all throughout time. We know this. This 1946 mistake, you know, obviously didn't start the persecution of LGBTQ people. But what we show in the film is it definitely amplified the weaponization of scripture against LGBTQ people. Because prior to 1973, it was a medical issue. And society took care of LGBTQ people. But once we were declassified as as, uh, not being mentally ill and society was starting to accept us, then that's when it became a moral issue. And that's when the church stepped in and we can totally trace that history. And so we just want to be honest about it and uh, be able to take my experience growing up and put it into real action for change. Yeah. And I thought it was so brave of not only yourself, but your, your family to be willing to like be involved in this film. And I have to admit when I first saw you include your father in this film, which I want to make sure that I honor the proper way. So please, if I ever say something here, please correct me. I have to admit when I first saw you include him, my first initial thought is that at the end of this film, it's going to be the like master change, non-affirming to affirming. And I thought it was so amazing the way that it played out. 
So um, trying to think of what my question is. I just want to make sure I told you that because um, I just love that, that you included your family in this. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the, I might have worked in Hollywood prior to doing a documentary and, you know, so I come from a Hollywood background, but this doesn't have a Hollywood ending. It doesn't have that happy ending. Um, but I think it, it was sure really important. Do- it sure doesn't. Yeah. But I do think it leaves us with a sense of hope though. Uh, and so, you know, and I did try to include levity throughout the whole story. So it didn't feel so heavy or, uh, traumatizing and Mm -hmm. it just leads us to a place where we're able to have healthy engagement, regardless what side of the, uh, debate you fall on. So Mm -hmm. having my dad be a part of the film was so important and, you know, we weren't sure if we were even going to put the Rocky and Sal storyline in, how that was going to play out, uh, how much we were going to do, if we were going to reveal him right away as my father or like kind of sneak it in, you know. Um, but he ended up taking a primary role because it does represent so many of us out there. And he's going to represent, he represents so many people. And I hope that, again, it just leads us all to a place of broader conversations and healing. That's the only thing that we can really say, you know, like, and it has even in my own family, I've seen a difference already. So, uh, I couldn't be happier to be honest with you. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I just, again, I, I just wanted to tell you how much I thought that was so great that you, you included them, that they were open. I mean, you can definitely see a man who loves his daughter. I mean, he comes to these things with you. And even if he's coming to try to go against what the person's speaking about or, you know, all of these things, he's clearly a man who loves his daughter. And it was such a a cool aspect of the film. But, you know, as you start getting into the film, you start to see, you know, you you see the, the two going to Yale and digging through the archives and finding these, you know, finding these letters after days of searching, which, oh my goodness, the patience to be able to go through that many documents, I think they said 60,000 documents, to be able to go through that many documents, oh my gosh. And just for the hope of finding a word, it's like a needle in a needle stack. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's it's crazy. And then they, they, and then they find it and they start tracing that back and you start getting into the committee of the RSV uh, translation. And for some reason, I always just, I knew ESV was a part of this and I even wrote it down incorrectly ESV for a long time until finally I, I picked up on, no, that was the RSV originally. So can you go into a little bit how the original translation of the RSV came about and how this all got started with the mistranslation? Sure. So the, uh, revised standard version committee was formed to their task was to modernize the King James, which was pretty much the most popular Bible. And it just, you know, obviously needed an update. And Mm -hmm. so the committee was formed and there were a lot of already uh, issues in the conservative Christian world with the RSV team because they were considered to be liberal they were also considered to be communist. Uh, there were a lot of slaps on the whole translation committee team, but honestly, it was a really academic team. And what Kathy and Ed discovered through the notes is these were very godly people who cared about what they were doing and took the job very seriously, you know? And so uh, all of that 
your translation is better than my translation. That's just identity politics, you know? And, and so, uh, mm-hmm. I think the revised standard version did a great job, but anyway, they were commissioned to do this updated translation committee in the thirties in 1941 is around when they signed off to make the decision on first Corinthians, which then what concluded the verse that used the word homosexual combined two Greek words, Malakoi and Arsinokoitai, to mean homosexual. And when Kathy first noticed that mistranslation, she was looking at the time of the culture in the 30s when the men who were born in the 1800s to you know the, the beginning of the 1900s, the late 1800s to the early 1900s, what was their understanding of homosexuality in that time period? Mm-hmm. Because there were still new things going on. And what she understood of the cultural context and literary context of the Arsenikoitai text was a hierarchy, abuse of power, you know, uh, these kinds of themes. And so she assumed that it was cultural and ideological and there was no theology behind it. And that's basically what they discovered through, through the letters. But the men of the time who put this word in, the only data that we have is uh, why they did it. And, you know, they assumed, and the Malakoi and the Arsinokoi tie is the active and the passive, but is it consensual or not consensual? What's going on with these roles of men who are having sex with men and what kind of sex is going on? And there's so much to unpack there. And they just took a modern word from our time. Homosexuals are men who have sex with men. And they put that word in there. The problem is, is that men who have sex with men is very different than a homosexual because a homosexual, homosexual is a medical term that means an orientation. So you could be a homosexual and never had sex in your life. You know, that's very different than arsenokoitai, which is the active participant in this men who are having sex with men, who is always uh, higher in status, power you know, dominance or it's a rape situation or it's sex for money, you know? So it's a very different Mm -hmm. connotation than homosexual. So when the translation committee was challenged in 1959 in the series of letters that we found, they were humble enough and smart enough to understand what this man was suggesting in this, hey, I think you got it wrong and here's why. And this man, who was a 21-year-old seminary student, wrote an academic explanation on why they were wrong. And so, it, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing letter with an appendix and, you know, listing all of the other translations and the, you know, the Greek, it's just incredible. And so, and he spent months researching to get this letter even out. And you can imagine his surprise when he got a response back from the head of the translation committee. And then they updated it. They recognized that they had made a mistake and they changed it. They took the word homosexual out completely and put in sexual perverts, which is still not the best translation. But again, then it suggests that this is an act that anyone can do, heterosexual or homosexual. Uh, but sexual perverts translation is another story. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, and then people will see in the film then how the word, what I say, how the word homosexual went viral in multiple Bible translations, in multiple verses. It went from one verse to six different verses where it definitely doesn't belong. 
really changing the connotation Mm -hmm. and then targeting LGBTQ people and giving the church and the moral majority a weapon against us to then politicize this issue uh, and begin this major culture war, which really did start in the 80s against the LGBTQ community. So that's kind of what the movie is about as far as like the persecution of gays. Obviously, again, you know, Mm -hmm. it didn't start in 1946. Uh, There's a lot to unpack around that. But we do believe strongly that our community would have been treated differently if the church didn't get involved with politics and didn't politicize this issue and didn't weaponize the Bible against people and instead just love like Christ loves and you know, welcome everyone in and engage with us and give us a seat at the table, all of that stuff, you know? So it really comes down to that fundamental thing, at least for me, you know? So I think it's that. I I hope everybody else sees it soon. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. And I, I, it's, you know, I mentioned to you before we, we got started that, you know, we, we talked, we had the great fortune of talking to Kristen Dumay about her book, and it's it's so interesting to see how her history research of the male dom uh, you know the patriarchy that dominated the evangelical church from the fifties to the sixties, and then of course the moral majority, which oh my gosh could be you know a thousand different podcasts in itself because of all of the things that came out with that, and how that all kind of wove into the story of what you were telling. And we just recently talked to um, Dr. Beth Barr about the ESV translation as well, and how you know how they fr- used phrases against women differently, and all of these things, and how it all just kind of came into this big pot of soup of crazy like hate. It feels like it doesn't like I don't know what the best best word for that is. Yeah, I would call it greed. No, I agree with you. It's definitely, yeah, greed, power hungry, that whole just like having to have that. So my question kind of boils down to this. As as all of these things have kind of been woven together, and I see how a mistranslation went into other other things, then got politicized, then got added to six verses, the famous six verses, which you show the book uh, God and the Gay Christian, which was the very first book that I ever read about this. Um, and I love that book. And all of these things, how sometimes it can make me cynical about any translation at this point. Because if it's if it's so easy to just do things like this that can cause so much harm, how can we trust any translation at this point? And not be at least a little critical of it and have to really dive into it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think recognizing uh, where and what kind of abuse we're talking about. And Mm. we can pull that aside and we can really see still what the scriptures, what they are, you know, what the scriptures mean. And so Mm -hmm. we just have to recognize how people, how humans have impacted the scriptures and how they have abused them, but that doesn't necessarily mean it takes away from these amazing inspired stories that do shape and have shaped our reality in our world and many, you know, cultures for generations. And so I, 
again, one of the things that I really wanted to do in the film is make sure that as we're introducing these notes of, hey, if this is wrong, or hey, this is wrong, knowing that our conservative and our evangelical audience and our faith-based audience is going to be like, well, if this is wrong, what else is wrong? And so I didn't want to have the rug be pulled out from underneath anyone. And I really just, because I don't want, this is an attack on faith. This isn't an attack on God. This is an attack on the Bible. This is about men. And again, we see in our story, these men who put the word homosexual in the Bible, we don't have any data to support that there was malice. We can only assume there was malice, or maybe somebody did hate homosexuals and they were going to go get the dirty, filthy homosexuals and they put it in. We don't have any evidence to support that. The only evidence that we have is a team that heard a man that they didn't know who signed with an alias that said, Hey, I think you got it wrong. And they listened, you know? And so we can only go off of that. There was a team that really cared about what they were doing because there's a, as one of our scholars says in the film, there's a power behind what you put out in a translation. So at the end of the day, we see even in the translation notes that the majority of people who work on sacred text really care about what they're doing and really love this sacred text. And so let's not let a few, you know, uh, bad apples spoil the whole bunch. I don't know what the right expression would be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I really, it was important to make sure that our faith-based audience could go on this journey with us and, be more encouraged about what we can get out of this instead of, you know, feeling like they're drifting off to sea because we've just unmoored them from their, their anchor. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's tricky. It was a tricky assignment. I'm not going to lie, you know? (laughs) Sure. No, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I'm sure it is. And I remember, I remember the experience of, and I hope this all makes sense, but, I remember the experience when I first went to college because I came from a pretty, I had a great childhood with amazing parents and so did all my friends, but we were pretty sheltered, right? We were in our little cocoon, our little like evangelical cocoon of, we had our little belief system. We had fun. We did amazing things. They're still my like best buddies, but then you go to college and you experience more people and you meet more people and you become friends with all these different people and you you grow to love these people and you grow to like you know care about them and who they are and where they are and i remember the experience of meeting a person from the middle east for the first time and you know when i was growing up i was basically told that if you didn't believe exactly what i believe then you know you were just going to burn forever and you know, that was just your choice. You decided to burn forever, basically. And and you meet these people and they're amazing people and you experience their culture and how loving they are and, and all of these things. And I just remember this like messing with your mind and how that like changed things organically over time. And the same with meeting, um, well, okay, let me say it this way knowing that you met an LGBT person, you know, cause I'm sure I had friends that probably didn't come out until way later. In fact, I know I did. Um, but that first time when you, when you meet someone and you grow to love them and grow. So I, I actually started getting encouraged with 
our generation. So I'm in the dreaded millennials, right? But, you know, our generation of meeting people and having different experiences and, and growing and evolving a little bit in our beliefs. And I've always kind of wondered, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. The one thing about Christianity that's always kind of like baffled me a little bit is that even though within the sacred, within the text, there's evolution of thought. You know, even in the Old Testament, there's evolution of thought. Yet for some reason, Christianity seems to be stuck 2,000 years ago. I wonder why that seems to still be going on. Like, why does there seem to not be new texts being written? And like, why did that suddenly like seem like it stopped? And I'm curious what your thoughts are on something like that. That one I don't have any answers for. You know, uh, I, sure. I I can't talk about authors of sacred text or why there wouldn't be any current right. authors of sacred text. I I have no idea. Um, but yeah, that's that's I fair. I'm sorry, I threw and, that out of nowhere. Yeah, no, that's fine. I can concur though that you know uh, the text does reinterpret itself, and it's it's mm-hmm. allows us to do that. And you are absolutely correct that we are stuck in a sense of not allowing the scriptures to work in our time period. And that's one of the things we are, one of our scholars does mention in the film as well. And I think it's a really important note. And so maybe that will also help us all start having those kinds of conversations and we'll see what other, what other experts have to say about that. Maybe I'll ask some, some of the experts that I know. Um, but you mentioned another thing too, you know, as far as like getting out into the world and meeting people and mm-hmm. not just with, from different cultures, but you know, sexual orientation. And one of the other important takeaways of our film is being in relationship. And you said it yourself until you were in relationship, you really didn't know. And I said it myself earlier if I wasn't so, uh, uh, you know, inquisitive and and also othered, and then I ran away from home and had the opportunity to meet other people, I would still be the same narrow-minded, small-town, one-way thinking person. And uh, I think that not that you know that that the, the Christian community can't think any other way, but I mean it, it's it is a, a thing of you know your dogma kind of dictates your world, and it's it's hard to step outside of that. Uh, and mm-hmm. once you're in relationship, and you realize that all of these things that we are hearing, which just come from fear, I think that, and as I mentioned in the film too, our loved ones who still subscribe to this way of thinking are victims of bad theology, just like we are. I think that there are some bad people who have used religion and in a sense then have used the Lord's name in vain. That's how you take the Lord's name in vain to mm-hmm. tell lies that people end up believing like Muslims are bad or gay people mm-hmm. are destroying society. You know, all of these awful things that we've heard on the pulpit or on TV from conservative Christian talking heads. And that's not what Christianity is. And I don't think that that's what the majority of Christians, I don't think that that's what Christians are. I think that these lies have started to really just 
you know, they've impacted our society. And I'm so grateful for the millennials and Gen X now, they're Gen Z now too. I'm a Gen X, but more young people being able to say, wait a minute, I go to school with these people. My, I'm friends with these people, just like Kathy was friends with Neto in the film. She's like, my lesbian friend, God can't love my lesbian friend. Well, I love my lesbian friend, you know? And so I think it really does right. start with relationship, which is a very big key in creating change. And it's it's so interesting as you kind of... So 2016 was my big moment, if you will, as far as like, I was already starting to shift my thinking and all these things. And then 2016 happened and I just couldn't understand it. I, I just, I, I couldn't understand what transpired in that with the election. I couldn't understand with the demographics and all of these things. But the good that came out of that is that it sent me down a path of exploration and being willing to read more things than I ever thought that I would, or listen to more things than I ever thought that I would, and hear more types of thought than I ever thought that I would. But what has come out of that, that that I get reminded of occasionally, is that because of the way you grow up, especially in an evangelical church, and because that's so much of your identity as you're growing up, that's part of what they teach you. You know, it's your identity, your it's your life, you know, scripture is your, I don't know, blood, if you will. That it it always becomes this lens and it's tough to like not see through that lens and you always almost somewhat see through that lens even when you're when you're ex going through other avenues and and exploring new things and and learning new things and and meeting new people so i agree with you that i think you know that relationship is really what breaks down that lens more so than probably anything because getting to know people and and experiencing them and and who they are and and growing to care about them is just uh just changes the way you are but and it would change the whole world honestly if every religion which i think all religions are based in love if all of those people focused on that instead of domination uh think of all of the beautiful things we would have in our reality you know Oh, Why does it yeah. have to be I'm right and you're wrong? Why can't it be I love you and you love me? I think our world would just look right. so different, you know? Yeah. I want to see you flourish and I want to, you know, yeah. and I want to see, you You know, yeah. And, and totally. you know, I, I hear it in a in business world of like the scarcity mentality versus like abundance mentality and how that changes your worldview in business where if you believe that the world is is full of scarcity and there's a finite amount of money or whatever you're going for then it'll cause you to be cutthroat and it'll cause you to you know may you may screw over a partner or you may do some things that aren't really that ethical or maybe not but you know you you're always going for that next thing believing that it's just not going to always be there but if you have an abundance mentality then you're not as worried about your competition you know that they can win too and you're still going to do well and they're going to do well and it's okay and if we just had that as a society with people sometimes i just wish people would relax just like take a deep breath be with people enjoy them root for them want them to flourish 
want them to be get the get every right that they should get and be treated like a human being and it's okay like it's fine so i i just believe that that would be that i agree it would make the world so much different and it's almost unimaginable to even think of what that would be like at right. this point right but it, it it sounds so you know it should be so simple it but it's not that simple i mean even in our own relationships how hard it is sometimes to just get along with people you know but uh you know i don't know but i think it does it's just relationship and then we can see all all past that and then just laugh at at any of the you know the things that our family members do that might annoy us oh yeah oh yeah well it's uh but that's that yeah that's life and that's that's always fun to navigate in some ways but um so we're recording this on December 8th and you just were, were able to go through your first film experience um, and documentary um, experience, you know, getting to share it for the first time. So how was that experience? How has the response been for your film so far? Has it been what you thought or sure. what surprised you so far? Yeah, I was ready to show the film. So I, I was a little bit nervous, but I've been ready for a while and have known for a while what we wanted to deliver. And I feel I'm really proud of our team. And I'm really proud of the work that that we did. And as I was saying before we got on the call, Doc NYC was a perfect festival for us to premiere at. And we did great at the festival. We had so many people come out and support us. We won the audience award. We sold more tickets in Doc NYC history, which means we had an opportunity to wow. let our audience, which we've gathered a huge audience on social media. We've got almost 200,000 followers on TikTok and 30,000 followers on Instagram, and we're growing every wow. day and people are learning about us, right? And so, you know, I wanted to make sure the film was available for our first look audience to take a look at it. And we sold a lot of tickets and we had a, a great turnout and that turnout, I've asked them, would you watch the film again? And they're like, yes, get a streaming deal. Absolutely. You know, and this is a film that I do believe people will watch more than once because of all the nuance and the academics and different things. But I wanted the audience to, I wanted to just make it available. And so, and the people that did see it, so far the response has been fantastic. The press has been overwhelmingly supportive, people that we don't know, even the press of our opposition are getting our quotes, most of our quotes right, and letting our voice be heard on that side, which is, I think is incredible, even if they don't agree with us, and then they have anti-other scholars coming in with their opinion of what our Sinequoi time means, but this is great. We're really expanding the conversation, you know? Uh, and so now the plan is to play select festivals throughout 2023, which we are already on that path. We're going to be at the Palm Springs International Film Festival in January in California. If anybody's out that way, come see us. And there's information on our website, 1946themovie.com. And then we're going to be doing other festivals, but we're working on a streaming deal where we can make the film hopefully globally available as soon as possible and make it as widely available domestically and abroad. Cause we have fans and people who hit us up all over the world. And so uh, the response has been overwhelmingly positive and I can't wait to continue to see it grow and let more audiences see it. 
and see where the conversations go. You know, this is the fun time now. This is the exciting time. Yeah. Yeah. And I can certainly speak to, you know, I got a chance to watch it. I was so fortunate to be able to watch it. And I'm the, I'm that demographic you were just talking about, because I know that when you watch it the next time, there's going to be something that I missed the first time that's going to make me go back and go, oh my goodness, how did I miss that the first time? And I'm a, I'm a six on the Enneagram. So words matter to me and I obsess about phrases and whatever else. So I will hear something and be thinking about it forever. So I'm definitely your demographic that as soon as it goes to streaming, I'll be the one who's watching it multiple times and having everybody watch it. And I love that. Yeah, that's another thing we hear. They want their family members to watch it, you know? So mm -hmm. that's so exciting. Really cool that people yeah. want to share, share the movie, you know? Yeah. Well, you do, you do, you did a fantastic job with it because it, it really does take you down a journey that I can see some of my friends and, you know, maybe even family members who would come into it skeptical if I just told them what the movie was, just on a quick description. And that it can be disarming the way you approach it and you you bring in a human element immediately and you get that the only word that's coming to my mind is empathy i hope that's the right word but you sure. get that immediately and you start to really start to see how this shaped you and and everyone so i really i i, I just i i'm really excited for it to get to the get for the world to see it and it's such an honor to get to meet you and get to talk to you. I, I know how busy you are and I'm, I'm, we're so fortunate to have you be able to join us, especially with our um, scheduling uh, snafu. So thank you for being flexible yes. with us. And thank you and for being that. flexible. So, oh, oh, but, um, <laughs> but thank you so much. So I know you said it already, 1946, the movie, um, but do one more time, tell people where they can find more information about this and we'll make sure we put it in our show notes as well so that everybody has a chance to, to see. Thank you. Yeah. Everything. So the website is 1946themovie.com. We are on all social media and our handle is at 1946themovie. So it's really easy to find us. Uh, and the best way to support us is to follow us and interact with our page share our content. If you've seen the movie, tell people, you know, all that good stuff. Um, awesome. Yeah. And then if you go to our handles, if you go to any of our socials, we have a link up in the bio of all of our handles as well. And there's also, I do want to say this because I put together some really great resources for people who, if you can't see the film right now, if you go to the link in our bio, you'll find just some helpful videos and some bibliographies and just different things so people can have a starting point to really delve into this kind of uh, conversation. So there you have it. That was my interview with Rocky Raggio. And I, I can't express enough how excited I was when she agreed to come on. I truly, I got a chance to see the film right before I talked to her. I was fortunate enough to get to see it. And I gotta say, I do believe that this film is a very, very important film for the church to see. She did mention that there are churches that have reached out to her to potentially do screenings later on, which is a kind of cool thing. 
She's in a lot of film festivals. She was just at the New York Documentary Festival where she won the Audience Award. And she will be at the Palm Springs Film Festival that's happening January 5th through I think the 13th, I believe. Um, screenings for the 1946 film are on January 9th, 13th, and and the 15th. And you can get tickets and go to the Palm Springs International Film Festival to see it. However, if you want to hear more about the film, if you want to connect with Rocky, best way to do it is through social media. They have a website, 1946themovie.com. All of their social media feeds are... 1946 the movie it's easy to find it there's a lot of people that are already talking about it there's a lot of things that they post different clips different people talking about different things about the film so it's pretty easy to find it's a really great film to find but um but james right before we started recording you were um mentioning some things that you were able to take out of out of the conversation so i wanted to kind of throw it to you yeah, so um, I wanted to to mention a couple things. Um, one that if you are in the community that views the Bible as completely inerrant and all of that, um, I feel like this is one of those good times to be able to see that while I do believe there's a validity to saying this is like word of God and that like this is communications influence, like whatever, however it could be said. Um, this is the way people viewed God and viewed interactions with God as they were writing them down, but it is still through the filter of people. Um, if nothing else through the translations, because you know, it wasn't written in English. And so, um, it's not perfect. And I feel like this proves that that's true. Um, but that also doesn't mean it doesn't have worth. I know that growing up, we were always told that you had to believe, you know, 6,000 year creation story, all of that kind of stuff. Because if you didn't believe any of it, then you couldn't believe if you stopped believing something you had to stop believing all of it like everything falls apart if like faith is just a weird jenga tower wherever you everything you pull out is one of the bottom blocks i don't feel like that has to be the case um and so while we are you know in in interviewing her pushing this kind of realization of um Bible's not perfect. I also want to say the Bible is still important and there's a lot to get from the Bible and a lot of um, value to it. Mm -hmm. um, but it can't be removed from uh, you know tradition and community of believers, Holy Spirit, just all these different ways um, that we go through with interpretation and all of that kind of stuff. And it's also a reason why we can't land in the, the position of um, well, I don't translate the Bible. I just read it as it is. Well, other people did for you to read it like it is. So even that's not a, f a foolproof plan, you know? Um, 
So, yeah. Take the time to research. Look into things. You know, like, especially verses that are, like these that have been taken um, for the way people need to view entire groups of people and think of them as bad or less worthy of whatever. Um, yeah. Any, any, any verse that you use to um, prop up any of those kind of beliefs, maybe look into it more because God isn't into giving you reasons to hate people. God's more about informing us how we should love people. And so if you were taking verses to um, be against people, maybe read it again and try to figure out um, how that interpretation is going wrong for you. Sure. Yeah. So everybody, we have made it. We have now made it through another year with this podcast. This is season seven of the podcast. Oof. I can't believe that we have made it seven seasons. Yeah, that doesn't sound right. No. Um, but this year has been, I don't know if it's even arguably, I'm pretty sure this has been the best year that we have had yet. We have had some amazing guests this year, some people that we put on our fingers crossed, finger toes crossed type list of people that we just were hoping we could get to talk to. We got a chance to talk to. I mean, if you look at the list of this year, uh, we had Josh Scott, we had Jared Bias from the Bible for Normal People, we had Brian McLaren, Caitlin Shess, Caitlin Shess, we had Sheila Gregoire at the beginning of the year. I hope to get her back for our, our annual early year sex talk again next Kristen year. Dumay. Kristen Dumay, we had uh. Rocky from 1946. We had um, just some extremely heavy hitters, some amazing people. Some, And that's the thing. They are all amazing people. They were great guests. They were great. We hope to get a lot of them back. But as we, so we're this is going to be the last one for a little while, probably for about a month. We're going to take some time to plan out next year. With that, we ask for your help. Is there somebody you want us to talk to? Is there a book that you've heard are coming out and you think would be a great guest for us to talk to the author? Is there a film that you've heard is coming out that you want us to talk to a director? Is there just an influencer, a person who you see on the internet, a person that you've heard, a pastor that you think is a really cool resource? Whether that be a progressive pastor or a conservative voice, we're wanting to talk to both. We're wanting to get a good perspective. We want the conversation. And we're open to the suggestion. You can find us. We're not hiding anywhere. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. You can see us. But we want to hear from you. If there's a subject as well that you don't know who would be a good person to talk to about it, but there's a subject that you'd like to hear, whatever our thoughts are or whatever, pitch us, pitch us subjects as well. Pitch us subjects. So I, I can't say this enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you for hitting the play button. If you've listened to one episode, if this was your first one, or if you've listened to all 160-some-odd episodes at this point, 
it is an honor that you hit the play button. This is not something that we make a ton of money doing. This is something we love doing and something that we want to continue to do. So thank you for that. But with that, first of all, Merry Christmas. This will come out on Christmas. So Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next year. But on but with that, we'll go ahead and end this episode on behalf of David Meggs, Matthew O'Mealy, and Malia Mullins. I'm Brad Stair. And I'm James Eisenhower. Everything is okay, people. Shine night, holy night, always come, always bright. Well, your virgin mother and child, holy infant so Oh!